Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 106 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. On today's episode, I have a conversation with mentor extraordinaire Lita Citrone. As I mentioned in the show, Lita was introduced to me through our mutual connection, Diana Rao, and I was introduced to her through our mutual friend, Gene South. Our connection is a direct example of how a network can be used for the good of our community and not just our own benefit. Today, we'll talk about how Lita's unique background and insights can help veterans in their post-military life. Just because you've done something in the military doesn't mean that's what you're supposed to do when you come out. Right. If you were a mechanic in the Navy and now you want to be an author or, you know, a speaker, great, go be an author or a speaker. And I think so often we're limited by what we've done before. By the same token, if you want to be an author and a speaker and you're not very well spoken and you can't form a sentence, no matter how much you want that, it may not be in your cards. So there's a lot of possibility out there. It's just kind of helping folks create a strategy. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast once again. And as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health and wellness. And and if you're a longtime listener to the show, you know that it's not just about PTSD. It's just it's not just about, you know, being sick and psychologically sick. Um, it's about the the entire aspect of our post-military lives. And that's why I'm excited to have uh, my guest on the show today, uh, because she is a recognized expert on helping veterans and military service members and spouses prepare for their life after the military. Uh, so my guest today is a, a friend and a local colleague. Um, we, we likely could have done this in person, but we <laughs> but we were not doing it in person. Uh, my friend from just up the road, Lita Citrone. Lita, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dwayne. I'm so excited to be talking to you today. 
Yes, absolutely. So it's I, I seem to be having a lot of conversations with people that we've talked to each other a lot, but it's never been on the show. So I'm <laughs> glad to have finally had you come on the show and and really share your unique insights into um, what employers are looking at and what veterans and service members should be looking at when it comes to really this this the psychological stuff. Uh, but before we get into that, I'd like to give you an opportunity to give a little bit of a background uh, for yourself. Sure. Well, thank you. Um, I come to this conversation a little bit from a little bit of a different place. Um, I am a civilian who spent 20 years in corporate America, climbing the proverbial corporate ladder, um, successfully, I might add. But uh, in 2008, decided to start my own business. Um, I, in my corporate roles, I had always focused on brand building, marketing, business development. And when I started my own company, I wanted to go from helping companies position themselves to helping individuals. So I, I sort of was an early pioneer in this concept of personal branding and built a company very successfully to help executives and professionals position themselves competitively. Year and a half later, sitting at a Denver Broncos football game, unbeknownst to me, at halftime, the team did a tribute to returning military, and they brought some veterans out on the field to celebrate Veterans Day. And these folks talked about how hard the transition was. They said things like, I don't know how to sell myself. I don't know how to tell an employer what I'm good at. And I realized that everything I had done in corporate was not being talked about to service members and veterans who were trying to compete against civilians. So that was almost 10 years ago. Um, I've been working in the veteran space ever since. It's, it's not been easy. There was a lot for me to learn. Um, Y'all have a lot of acronyms <laughs> and a lot of abbreviations, but there didn't seem to be a lot of people talking about how to position yourself. And when it comes to trying to get a job or get a better job or get funding or, or an investment, we need to position ourselves and we need to be able to tell our story in a way that's meaningful and compelling. And so today that's a lot of the work that I do. Um, I've written a couple books on the topic and I speak all over the country, helping service members and veterans tell their story, build their brand. See, and, and of course I, I really appreciate that. As a matter of fact, I think that uh, you and I were connected through um, several different colleagues. You found me, um, through, um, uh, Diana, Diana Rao through Veta, Veterati. And then I found you, um, uh, through another mutual colleague, but the idea of the transition, how difficult the transition is and how, um, how the branding is important. See, and, and we'll just maybe use me as a case example. Um, I was in the military for 22 years and then I emerged into a different, uh, industry, the clinical mental health industry. And so, um, despite my age, let's say, um, I am relatively young in my career field, um, where that would normally be a disadvantage. Someone that went into the mental health field directly after college has already been doing this for 20 years. And here I am, I'm a brand new guy. Um, I've only been doing it for five. Um, and so that, that is a challenge for me to, how do I differentiate myself in this space? How do I create, um, something different? Because, it, through no fault of my own, I have the disadvantage, quote unquote, or, or could it be seen as a disadvantage of being behind the power curve? Um, and, and this, I think, is something unique for a lot of uh, career uh, service members starting out in their late 30s, early 40s in a different career field. 
Well, I think, you know, the, the best line is you start from wherever you are, right? And if you're leaving the military after four years or 44 years, that's where you start. What matters more than the length of time is how you explain that, right? So if you're, if you're joining the community or the conversation, having served your country, what does that investment in your, in your country's service mean in terms of your ability to differentiate yourself? So I believe in leveraging military service, certainly not hiding from it. And I coach folks at all different levels of transition, um, multi-star generals to, you know, veteran millennials, right? Which is a whole nother conversation. Um, but it really is about how you tell the story and how you make yourself compelling and interesting to the people that want to hire you. See, and, and uh, that's critical, obviously, is um, we don't know what we don't know. When, when we're inside the military, we're in this machine um, with all of our acronyms and all of our buttons and all of our whistles, um, and we don't know what it's like. Like you said, there's nobody is, is necessarily teaching it to us. Number one, you wouldn't expect them to because that's not the military's job. The right. military's job is to turn us into you know, soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines. Um, it's not the military's job is to turn us back into civilians. Exactly. Um, and so, and that's where you have made an effort to help, um, help veterans make that transition and, and sort of smooth that, um, so that they can have a, a better post-military life. Well, exactly. I mean, it was my, my feeling that you need to have the same competitive advantage that I have. And I'm coming at the conversation having not taken 20 years out to serve my country, but having taken those same 20 years and, and been in business. So I understand the lingo. I understand the culture. I understand some of the biases and some of the opportunities. I don't necessarily come at this to give you an advantage, but I want you to have the same ability to compete. And that's what I really tried to do through the works that I've done, the books that I've written and the coaching is just make sure that, that the playing field is level. And it seems to be working. I mean, I, I, the thing I think we miss so much when we think about the, the military workforce is you're so trainable, right? You were, you were trained to do what you did in the military. You didn't know how to do that when you showed up there for the first day. You learned how to do that. And so for companies to understand how trainable you are, it's amazing. And, and I love working with an audience that gets it and is willing to put, you know, put some effort behind it and make it happen. And I think that that is competitive advantage. Sure. I mean, and that's one of the things is, uh, you know, and, and maybe a lot of veterans are like, well, I don't know this job, but I'll pick it up pretty quick. And, mm -hmm. and maybe some employers aren't familiar with that. And they're like, well, there's no way someone couldn't, you know, if you don't already have the five years experience uh, in, in everything else. Right. And, and the one thing that, that I, I appreciate you and, and we've talked about this before, it's you taking the time to learn the military culture, right? You know, it's just like as if we were, you know, um, if you as a businesswoman were sent to your Berlin office, you would take the time to learn the culture of, you know, the, the, um, the country in which you or, or if you were, you know, a, an East Asia expert in your organization, you would take the time to learn and understand that culture. Um, and, and you've done that and you have had conversations with business people that don't understand that it's really a separate culture, I think. Well, I think the perception on, is on both sides, right? So I, I teach in the transition program. I, I teach this at military installations around the country. And, and I think when I'm, when I'm speaking to service members about the difference in 
nuance and culture and community on the civilian side. It's as important as when I'm speaking to employers who ironically see me as as a, as a somebody who cracked the code, right? I'm a civilian who understands the military, must be some kind of unicorn, right? Um, but but they don't understand what they don't know either. So you're absolutely right. Both sides of the of the cultural divide, if you will, don't understand each other. But I think what's so frustrating for a civilian is you were a civilian before you joined the military. The, the military recruits from the same job pool that companies do, and that's civilians. So there's this misunderstanding about how could you not understand what I'm talking about? You were a civilian before you joined the military, but you were perhaps a young person who grew up in a military culture, and therefore your adult life was shaped in a very different set of values, a different set of priorities, a different work style, language, country, most likely. And that, that means it's going to be different. So before we had started talking, you had mentioned that there are some uh, biases that you have heard from employers um, that, that not a lot of veterans or, or service members understand when they're emerging into the workforce. Well, I think they're ones that I don't think they're going to find shocking or unique, but whether it comes from Hollywood, where it, whether it comes from our upbringing, but if you're part of the 99% of the American public that <clears throat> has not served in uniform, you don't know what you don't know, right? So we see things in movies, we hear stories, we see things float across our social media, and that's what we believe to be true because we don't know otherwise. And I think that creates some biases. When I go into companies and I work with their recruiting or their hiring managers to kind of level set some of the misperceptions, some of the myths, it's almost, I feel like it's almost tongue in cheek, but I look at them and, and they're really struggling with this. You know, do all veterans have PTSD? Are all veterans going to come to their employment uh, aggressive and assertive? Do they all want to be leaders? Do they all want to be in charge? You know, are all veterans men? I mean, these are these are things they don't know until they're shown otherwise sometimes. And it's it's exciting to be able to be part of that conversation and really help them understand the breadth and the depth of the workforce that's coming into the market from the military. See, and, and coming from the veteran side, this is maybe my maybe something that makes us aggressive that, you know, how can they not know that? Right. This is in my mind where, what mm -hmm. I'm looking at from from my point of view. It's like I'm so immersed in the military culture that these things are so evident to me mm -hmm. um, that that how can somebody think that way in this day and age when when we've been doing this for so long? I would certainly say I think it's getting better. I think the conversations I'm having today are different than they were 10 years ago. And whether it's social media, whether it's efforts like yours, right, that are bringing awareness to this, I, I think we're definitely moving the needle. But there is still perception and perception is a reality. I mean, my whole business is around perception and reputation. So so I, I don't fight it as much as I try to understand it and help people understand it. The, is the pressure then on the employer to get a better understanding of who the veteran is, or is the pressure on the veteran to present a myth-busting persona? I, I don't know. I think it's a little bit of both. 
I think it's, you know, if employers are better educated and veterans coming into the marketplace are better equipped to tell their story and promote their value, I think we've got a win-win. You know, and this is definitely something that I have seen with military transition and veterans. And, and when I see veterans and they work with me, there's a, um, a mental health concern that they're maybe dealing with. Um, uh, but also there's just this, this struggle, this fr- frustration. A colleague of mine, Megan Mobs, um, has really said that we're, we're paying too much attention perhaps on PTSD and TBI, which is driving this narrative and not talking about the transition stress, right? The transition stress of how do I meet my needs once I leave the military? How do I ensure my family's taken care of? How do I ensure that I find something in my, my post-military life that gives me as much purpose and meaning? Um, and, and these ideas about transition stress that, that even we as veterans aren't really paying attention to. Um, but, but that's exactly it as veterans think, well, well, of course I served the military. And so, I mean, there's almost a sense of entitlement. So it does have to be this two way street. There has to be a level of, um, uh, give and take where the veteran has to compromise and change and learn and grow. Where also, uh, some of these preconceived notions from the employment sector also have to be changed. And I love what you said about the transition, because that's often where I start. And when employers hear what the transition process actually is, a lot of times their mouths are wide open. They cannot believe that somebody served their country and and did the kind of work that you've done for 20, 30 years. And this is what your, how you're transitioned out. Like it, I mean, from a corporate standpoint, it sounds completely inadequate and I would venture to guess there are some veterans who might describe it as inadequate, but I'm not here to argue that. But, but I think there's this idea that you, you go through this laborious process when, in fact, it isn't that. And so we do get a lot of you know, folks in, in the mar- marketplace who aren't prepared, who are overwhelmed and therefore don't present themselves the best when they sit across from an employer. You know, one of the things I, I love to teach in my, um, my TAP training is about the word choice. Because as a civilian, choice is power, right? I love choice. I want as much choice as I can have because I'm in a position of control. But I, I, I share with um, service members that, you know, when you're coming out of the military, you're excited about a lot, right? You get to choose where you live. You get to choose what time you wake up in the morning. You get to choose what kind of work you want to do. But that choice is also terrifying because nobody's telling you what time to get up in the morning. No one's telling you what to wear or what you're supposed to do. And I hear it over and over that choice might be great for a civilian, but it can be paralyzing to someone who hasn't lived in a space of that much choice. And and so, you know, it's that difference that I think the more that we expose it or shine a light on it helps employers understand, oh, okay. So the fact that the guy was a little rough around the edges, the fact that he kept calling me ma'am and I'm only 24 years old or, you know, now I understand why. I thought this transition was a lot different. The process was a lot different. So I love to start my programs off that way. No, that is entirely accurate. As you're saying, I mean, we're not given much choice, right? You know, you hear these stories of of Steve Jobs um, only wearing one type of 
t-shirt and jeans <laughs> to be able to reduce his his you know whatever decision um, making yeah. decision making right but but we're, we're told what to wear right we're told what to to do in many ways i mean and not to say in this you know you know maybe perpetuating the stereotype is we're not all automatons but i have this concept that that veteran service members we're okay with with change on a global scale i i I had in my military career, I almost had a millennial type, if we want to use the stereotype of, of I changed jobs every two or three years, mm -hmm. right? Because I moved to a different position sure. or a different company or I went through, right? So I have this sort of job hopping thing for, the, you know, nearly a quarter of a century. Um, we're okay with big change of moving families and moving, but the small changes we can't stand. So God forbid if the, the dining facility is open 15 minutes later than it usually is, or <laughs> right, the, the gate that I usually come into is closed that day. My entire day is wrecked and, and I can't. And so I, I need stability in the small things in order to be able to acknowledge this, you know, to, to have variability in the large things. And, and that goes into your idea of choice is, um, having too much choice can be paralyzing for a lot of veterans. Um, and we just don't understand the value of it. Well, and, and, and I think, again, that just comes from having to be retrained. Because the other thing is the, choice, the choices that you are given in the military, from what I understand, you are trained to know how to navigate. So, you know, we're, we're talking about a different mission now. We're talking about a different set of, you know, of situations. Everything is different. And we're saying the future is your oyster, Dwayne. Go have at it. And you're like, okay, what do you want me to do first? <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and, and that can be confusing. That's typically why somebody will present to a hiring manager and say, I can do any job you want. What do you need? And that hiring manager doesn't know, doesn't know how to respond. That, that's not the question that they're used or the answer that they're used to. So it's both sides, both sides kind of moving a little bit to the middle in understanding the nuances of, of, you know, the process. So what would you say, and, and you, you coach a lot of veterans and service members on, on how to interact with, with, you know, maybe some business owners or some employees who have these preconceived notions. Um, what is the best way in your experience for a, a veteran or service member to be able to present themselves? Well, I, I, I always say it's an inside out process, right? So the first thing is before you're in that situation, whether that interaction is at a job fair, in a job interview, um, in a networking class, whatever, is to really have a sense of who you are. And that's a big question um, when you haven't been thinking about who you are for however long you've, you've been in uniform. Um, but getting a sense of what are your values, what are your non-negotiables, what type of reputation do you have today? And that reputation that you have today may have been purely developed in the military. Okay, but let's understand what assets you're going in into your next career with, right? To use your friend's um, expression so that you can have a meaningful career. But I also help folks understand and get clear on what it is they want. And that's often a very different conversation when I'm coaching or I'm facilitating a workshop of veterans than if I'm facilitating a workshop of civilians. If I ask you, like, what do you ultimately want out of life? You know, it, it'll stop them. And they think about family. They think about community. It's like, no, I'm asking you as an individual, what do you want for your life? And they look at me like, like I've just spoken a foreign language. But that's 
that's where it's an inside out process. That's where if you can show up and say, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, this is what I'm looking for, you're, first of all, able to find your target audience. You're able to find people who believe the same thing and are looking for the same thing and want to achieve the same thing. But you're also bringing your most authentic self forward. And when it comes to marketing ourselves online or in person, it is about being authentic. Um, and I see all day long when I look at LinkedIn profiles or I see people on Facebook or, or you know, I meet them at a job fair. I can tell when they haven't been through this process because they sound like everybody else. They're reading, you know, it's like their, their elevator pitch is their MOS, you know, <laughs> it's like groovy for you. But who's the man behind that, you know, and, and what do you want to do with your life? What kind of things are important to you? Those are some big questions to try to answer. And and again, I think that's something that the military does not do. Um, is, no, it's not is help us. To. Yeah. Sure, right? Yeah, it's we. It doesn't develop self awareness and self reflection. Um, it's the concept of the military tells us what to do and how to do it. Um, but and this is very much in my realm is to be able to help people make sense of why it was done and why they did it and why they did it in the way that they did. And so this idea of self awareness and self reflection. Um, it wasn't necessary when we were in the military. It was, it was, you know, and we didn't do things that weren't necessary. If it didn't, you know, uh, support the mission, then it didn't happen. Right. And, and so this idea of what do I personally want? And again, the other thing you pointed out was it's all about the community. It's all about the other rather than the self. And that's exactly the way it was in the military. You know, my shield covers my brother or my sister. It's always about what, what is good for best for the group and the team, rather than what's actually best for ourselves. And and that's a mindset shift that veterans need to make. Um, and that's part of what you're talking about, the inside out, I think. Well, and that's, that's often where I meet with the most resistance, right, is when I talk about the military values of service before self. It's not about you. It's about those you serve alongside. And now you're shifting into a culture where, oh, it's very much about me. <laughs> I mean, and as a civilian, I have no trouble telling you what makes me great and wonderful and interesting and all that. For somebody coming out of the military, um, you tend to use we more than I. And it's a subtlety, but it's a challenging subtlety when you're sitting across from a hiring manager who's evaluating you as a candidate and all they hear is the collective. And they don't understand where that comes from. They don't understand that feeling of, you know, being disloyal to those you served alongside if you take credit for something that happened while you were in uniform. They don't understand what that feeling is. So they might misinterpret that maybe you're shy or you're insecure or you're not confident about your abilities because you won't talk about things that you are proud of. That, again, is where that, that awareness building really has to happen. And, and I always say I'm not trying to teach veterans to be arrogant or to brag, but I am teaching them to confidently stand in their value and speak in first person to get the attention of the people who matter so that they can offer them the opportunities that they deserve and that they're capable of, of delivering on. That's all it is. What they do with it from that point they, you know, is their choice. You know, that's, uh, that's definitely an excellent point. And, and again, I have felt this myself. I've heard many veterans say that, you know, um, 
even talking about myself a little bit, it's almost as if our definition of arrogance has slipped down a couple of different notches, <sighs> right? So that even if I say, oh, I took, I take credit for this, um, then that means that I'm, oh, you're being Mr. Top of the Mountain or you're being, you know, Miss America or something like that. And so we want to avoid that. And so we create a disadvantage where, I mean, it's not false humility. Um, it's, it's really about, it's just not something we're not comfortable talking about each other. And, and we, and then we do that to other veterans too. It's like, oh, you're, you know, you're putting yourself out there that much who, you know, who you think you are and all these other things is, is this, you know, however you want to call it, but this misaligned sense of what we consider, um, confidence or, or what we see as arrogance is actually just confidence. And that fits in with everything else around us. Exactly. And confidence is very attractive. Arrogance isn't. So we have to we have to understand what the differences are. And that's that's a process. It's an iterative process. Um, and, and that's what I coach them through. Um, you know, because why shouldn't you? You should have every opportunity that I have. And we just came into the conversation conversation from different doors. So that's interesting. And, and you say in the idea of confidence being attractive to an employer and, and mm -hmm. arrogance is something that turns off. We need to know the difference. How do you explain the difference between the two? I think confidence is that when I say I can do something, when I talk about my values, I believe them. And there's almost a, um, a service component to it. That to me is confidence. Arrogance is is like is self centeredness. It's it's ego. It's it's coming from a different place, right? If I if I'm leading a group of service members through my process, and I need them to trust me, and I need them to believe that I have their best interests, and I need them to go through these difficult questions with me, I have to project confidence. I can't look scared, but if I look arrogant, then there's a wall between us, and it feels more like it's self serving. Like I'm there for some other reason than to serve them and to help them. That's how I see it in my own mind. I'm sure there's a, a Webster's dictionary definition that's more articulate. No, I, I like that idea. So confidence is, um, I, I know that I can solve your problem. What, what your problem is, whatever. And this is from, thankfully, blessedly, I've not been unemployed since I've been out. I've, I've had, you know, some, some very good experiences. Um, but the idea is that an employer is hiring someone because they have a problem to solve, right? There mm -hmm. is a, a problem that occurs. And so confidence is, I believe that I have the skill set and I've demonstrated the skill set otherwise that I can solve your problem. Right. Versus arrogance is you need me to solve your problem. Your your problem will not be solved without me. And therefore, I'm. that's why you need me to be the one to solve this problem. It, yeah. It, and I like the way you said it because it almost feels like the focus is on you when it's confidence, the focus is on me when it's arrogance. Um, and that, and I think arrogance would even be exactly what you just said. But if you don't know what the problem is and you come in with that message, it's arrogance, right? Cause you have to know what the problem is to be able to tell them you can solve it. So somebody who just says, no matter what the problem is, I can solve it. It's like, well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, let's be realistic here. No, that is a good point is this idea. So I can come in and I can solve any problem because whatever the bu mm -hmm. buzzword is, is I'm a problem solver, right? You know, right. and, and a lot of problems and, and I enjoy solving problems. I enjoy riddles and, mm -hmm. and this is as a mental health professional, I help people work through um, their own concerns. Um, 
that can be a problem sometimes. Whenever I don't have a problem to solve, I can create chaos. So then I do have a problem <laughs> to be able to solve. And that's, and that's what a lot of veterans, right? That we're comfortable yeah. in this very chaotic kind of environment. And so if we emerge into a place that isn't chaos, we can do that. Um, but yeah, I think that idea of, well, I don't, I don't, and it goes back to the idea of arrogance and self versus confidence. I don't care what your problem is. Whatever your problem is, I'm the one to be able to solve it. Right. And it's like, you know, and, and I think taking that conversation just one step further, you know, the employer is hiring not just for people who can solve problems, but for people who are going to fit in, right? Culture, we keep hearing culture is so important. It is really important to companies because Google is not like GE, is not like USAA, is not like, you know, Whole Foods company. They're all these companies have different cultures. And to come in with that kind of an attitude, honestly, I'd rather hire someone who maybe wasn't as smooth at hiring, at solving problems, but wasn't arrogant because they hire for culture. They want people who are going to do well with the team, not come in like a steamroller. Right. And, and I think that's also a, a difference coming from my point of view is it didn't matter whether you fit in with the culture of the unit or right. not. The unit adapted you to their culture. I mean, and, exactly. and there wasn't a, um, and many times it's not like I was sitting at the uh, um, the reception area conducting interviews to see if someone would fit in to my unit. No, you have a certain job. I have this and, and I'm going to go grab you and, and, and I don't care about whether or not you fit in. I'm going to make you fit in because if you don't fit in, then things are going to be a problem. Um, and so I, it, again, I think that's another lack of awareness of the difference between engaging in military occupations and then, you know, right. non-military. Exactly. Completely. And that's where, you know, the personality, if you will, of the company really matters. Do you fit in with that personality? Is that a kind of personality, if you will? If you gave a company a persona or personality, is that a place that you're going to enjoy hanging out for eight, nine, ten hours a day? Very important to understand. And I think that, and again, this is something even that I'm learning, right? You know, and, and perhaps if different opportunities have come along, um, I, I've said exactly the same thing. I could fit into whatever you, you know, need me to do. I can adapt. I was adaptable, you know, and, and, and all this, blah, blah, blah. And then after one kind of conversation, I, I had to step back and say, but do I really want to be right? Do I really yeah. want to, to compromise and not even compromise values? Does it wasn't like they're, you know, they want me to be a, you know, a loan shark or something, right? It, but it was just a different, you know, do, do I want to adapt the way that I see something to the way they see it? Um, is it really necessary? And again, there's that choice or even that freedom that we, that I didn't have when I was in the military. It was, you know, you're going to go over here. We don't, we don't care if you agree with right. what's going on or not. That's what you're going to go do. Um, and therefore you adapt to that regardless of your own personal values. But once you're out of the military, you can decide, you know what? I, I really don't want to do that. And, and I really wouldn't be comfortable doing that. So I can turn down what may mm -hmm. very well be an amazing opportunity, but for my own reasons and for my own personal satisfaction, it wouldn't do me any good or the organization any good if I were to compromise that. And, and that's a big part of what I do when I, when I train um, is to help kind of create these, whether you call them non-negotiables or, um, or, or deal points. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying for people when I tell them you're going to turn down great jobs. They're like, no, no, I would never turn it down. It's like, oh, you will. You'll turn down great clients because they're not right for you. 
they're not going to get you where you ultimately want to go. And if you're clear on where you want to go, it becomes really obvious when a client isn't a match, when a company isn't a match. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them or anything wrong with you. It just means it's not a match. And I think a lot of the turnover that we see in the first one to three years after separation or retirement, the, the a lot of the turnover that we see in employment is because people aren't thinking about that, right? They take the first job that comes along that pays them enough that their spouse feels like, okay, we're going to be okay, you know, and they can take care of their family and they feel settled. And then they go, what am I doing here? Like, I don't like this company. I don't like this job. I don't like these people. Like, well, why did I take this? And they start bouncing around. And that's what I try to avoid by having them think about that up front. You know, what would make you happy? Then whatever doesn't fit that, let's move that off to the side. And that's, that's somebody else's happy. Let them find that, but let's find your happy. And so, um, uh, ashamedly, I have to admit the fact that uh, I I was at my first job for eighteen months before I mm-hmm. transitioned, and, and and it's exactly what you're talking about. And I bring it up to be able to illustrate this point. Uh, it was a great organization. I loved working for the people I was working for and with the people I was working with, um, but it was working with homeless veterans, um, and it wasn't clinical therapy. It was much more like social work. And I realized once I got in there, that's not what I wanted to do. That's not what I went to school for. And and I, I didn't want that mile wide, inch deep kind of influence. I would rather have, a, 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 you know, the NCO level, you know, inch wide, mile deep influence on on a smaller number of people. And exactly that. Right. And, and, and that was the exact reason is, you know, I need to find a job that's going to get me as much. It's going to match my military, um, you know, pay just to be able to maintain my quality of life. And I don't regret it, um, you know, right. again, because I, I, I enjoyed the, the organization. And you're right. The 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 gentleman who's there now, he and I are friends and colleagues. And, and that was his position because exactly. he is a social worker and mm-hmm. I'm not a social worker. Um, and, and so but even then, even with this, quote unquote, good transition that I've had, um, it's still the same experience. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of times we have to experience that on our own rather than learning it from somebody else. Well, the the other way to to take that um, that thought a little bit farther is just because you've done something in the military doesn't mean that's what you're supposed to do when you come out, right? If you were a mechanic in the Navy and now you want to be an author or you know a speaker, great, go be an author or a speaker. And I think so often we're limited by what we've done before, right? By the same token, if you want to be an author and a speaker and you're not very well spoken and you can't form a sentence, no matter how much you want that, it may not be in your cards. So there's a lot of possibility out there. It's just kind of helping folks create a strategy. That's what I teach is just create a strategy for the next chapter so you can get that meaning, you can feel that sense of purpose as you did when you wore the uniform and know that it's just going to be different. It's just going to be different. And, and I think when, when we kind of level set, and this is, I think, something I wish that, that the transition programs taught more, is just set everybody up for the expectation of what that experience is going to be like. Um, obviously, I haven't been through it, but I've spoken to thousands and thousands of men and women who have, and they all say the same thing, right? It was not what they were expecting. It was harder than they expected. And even the ones who say it was easy will tell you it was harder than they expected, Um but it's survivable, right? And and for the, the folks that, you know, I know listen to your podcast so carefully, 
if you're coming into that conversation with a mental illness, it can feel like you're coming in with such a tremendous disadvantage. But I don't know that that's necessarily the case as much today in the business world as it may have been 10, 15 years ago. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the idea of, you know, if I haven't slept well the night before because of nightmares, it's going to be a challenging interview mm -hmm. anyway, regardless of whether the nightmares came from combat or came from a natural disaster, right? I mean, it's right. just this this idea of of because it's this combat stuff. Um, but, but the idea you were talking about expectation management, um, mm -hmm. that's critical, right? And, and, and we knew it in the military. If I was on patrol in Iraq and they said, so, um, when, when we go out on routes, they have different colors of routes. And so if the route was black, meaning that it hadn't been cleared for, uh, for explosive devices and, and it was very dangerous. Mm -hmm. So if, if they, you know, said, you know, hey, you're going out on a route and it's a black route, but you still have to go. Well, at least I have that expectation. I'm still right. going to do it, right? It's, oh, this is going to suck and I'm going to, you know, brace for, for whatever's going to happen. Um, but, but that was done in the military, right? This mm -hmm. expectation management of, you know, this is going to be challenging. This is going to be real. You know exactly how hard it's going to suck jumping out of this airplane. And yet, you know, others have done it before and things like that. And so that's a great point that I hadn't considered is that there's not a lot of expectation management conducted about leaving the military. Well, and in, in my first slide, it typically when I do a transition training is to just share some of the common threads that I have observed as a civilian who teaches this for more than 10 years. And what I see is I see color start to return to people's faces and their body language starts to relax a little bit. And then, and then I'll ask the question, so if you thought you were the only one who was feeling this and they're all nodding their heads, right? Because they're looking to the left and they're looking to the right and everybody looks like they've got it figured out, right? And, and they don't, they don't. It's just some might display it differently. But it's a process and going through that process, you know, the transition can take a week. It can take 10 years. Um, everybody's process is different. That part is no, that, different. That is critically important. I, I had a mentor of mine um, who uh, was a Vietnam veteran, but he had three tours in Vietnam. So he, he had a special kind of, you know, yes. he was in a certain kind of organization that, that did that. Uh, and he and I were having breakfast one time. And, and, and again, he is someone who he left the military. He became uh, a police officer, left law enforcement, became a Presbyterian minister, retired from that. And now he's a counselor, right? So he's had all of these different years. And he was asking me, he was like, you know, so how long you been out? And I said, oh, I've been out since 2014. It's been so long. And he started laughing. And he was like, you still have sand behind your ears. He was like, you come talk That's to me awesome. when it's 10 years down the road and, yeah. and see what this is going to happen. And I even see it myself. I, I wake up one day and here it is. I've, you know, this August, I've been out of the army for five years and it seems like it's gone by in a blink of an eye. Yeah. Um, and, and, and whether or not I fully have quote unquote transitioned, whatever that looks like. Um, I think that's critically important that everything happens at everybody else's pay at, at their own pace. Which, which I think the more we talk about that, it will take some of the pressure off that man or that woman who's 10 years out and says, I am struggling and I should have it all figured out by now because it's been 10 years and I've had 16.5 jobs and, you know, three marriages and whatever. And I thought I was doing okay. It's like, whoa, no, you're not doing okay. Let's, let's get in, you know, let's get you into some transition work here. 
Yeah. No, this is this is some great information. I can't believe how long it took me to even have you come on the show. Um, okay. As busy as, as both you and I are. So if people want to hear more about you, find your books, um, uh, see what you're doing. And this is literally, I mean, this is just the tip of the tip of the iceberg of some of the, the things that I've seen that you've done. Um, how How can they best connect with you and find you online? You know, all roads lead to my website, and the easiest place is lita360.com, which is L-I-D-A-360.com. What I would ask folks to do, just to get an understanding, is start with my TED Talk, because in my TED Talk, I really shared my my journey in learning to work with military and what I've taken from that. Um, as the daughter of someone, my mother grew up in communist Hungary, and I learned at an early age that freedom doesn't come for free. I've really taken that message into corporate. I've taken that message into my own business, my own brand, and the community of veterans and service members that I serve. And I would be honored if your listeners would watch my TED Talk and let me know what they think, if I, if I got it right. <laughs> Well, I'll make sure that uh, the links to your website um, uh, across several social media platforms and, and then also I'm going to embed the, um, the TED Talk into the show thank notes you. so that they can watch that. So thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. Well, thank you. And thank you for everything you're doing, not just here in our beautiful Rocky Mountain community, but nationally and internationally. I mean, I, I, Dwayne, I don't think you know half the people that you reach and touch with your powerful message. So thank you for what you're doing. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. There's a lot of great stuff here. Anybody who's listened to Lita speak or attended one of her courses wouldn't be surprised. She's recorded courses for LinkedIn Learning, is a regular contributor to Military.com, and is amazingly available and approachable. You can find her on Veterati, LinkedIn, Twitter, and on her website, Lita360.com. Since she and I talked, one of the things that she talked about has stuck with me. Confidence is using my skills to benefit others, whereas arrogance is using my skills to benefit me. This is a topic that a lot of veterans struggle with. Most don't like being in the spotlight, and they're uncomfortable with compliments and afraid of being seen as arrogant if they highlight their accomplishments. I'm not immune to it. Even with how much I put myself out there with the blog, the books, the podcast, social media, it's uncomfortable for me because I don't want to be seen as bragging or arrogant. The thing is, I have a message that I think is an important one. Somebody recently asked me, what are my career goals? And I don't think I answered the question well when it was asked. I struggled with it over the next couple of days. My answer is that I don't have any personal career goals. My goals are around the group that I've chosen to serve, service members, veterans, and their families. Not saying that it would have been arrogant to have personal goals because those are important, but my goal is to help others, and this is one of the ways that I'm trying to do it. Lita is one of those folks that I've relied on to help me frame my thoughts. She was part of the group that I interacted with in releasing Combat Vet Don't Mean Crazy and helped me out with the design of the book. Like me, her goal is to help those who serve live their best life possible after they leave the service, and I highly recommend reaching out to her if you haven't already connected. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash HST106. While you're there, consider leaving an honest rating or review. It helps other people find us. 
We're always looking for guests. You can drop me a line at info at veteranmentalhealth.com to recommend guests, or you can go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash guest to fill out a suggestion or request. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. Well, I am a therapist. I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album, Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into light, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us next week for another great episode. Until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone, ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-created enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability Looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? 
then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.